Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Corey, I'd like us to start this episode with a quote that I found, and you'll have to excuse my voice as I read it and as I talk throughout this episode because I'm getting over a cold. But this is a quote that in so many places online it has been credited to Nelson Mandela. However, I'm not actually convinced he was the one who said it. Seems like that's how it is with most quotes on the internet. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Apparently, it has been displayed at the entrance of the University of South Africa. Some say that it was written by a professor there. Most everyone else says it was Nelson Mandela. Regardless of who said it, I think it's an interesting quote. It says, destroying any nation does not require the use of atomic bombs or the use of long-range missiles. It only requires lowering the quality of education and allowing cheating in the examinations by the students. Patients die at the hands of such doctors. Buildings collapse at the hands of such engineers. Money is lost in the hands of such economists and accountants. Humanity dies at the hands of such religious scholars. Justice is lost at the hands of such judges. The collapse of education is the collapse of a nation. When you hear that, do you agree? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think atomic bombs is an effective way to do it too. (laughs) But destroying education definitely has the capability to collapse a nation in the long run. I think it's interesting that the quote puts the blame on two different parties there, one on the decreasing quality of education 
and the other on students who cheat their way through exams. But the core premise, and I think the, the meat of that quote is the collapse of education is the collapse of a nation. Yeah, it's interesting. We've talked about how you and I have each lived internationally. And during the time of my life that I lived in Mexico, I was in a state of Mexico called Oaxaca. Oaxaca for the gringos among us. Yeah, it's spelled like Oaxaca. But in Oaxaca, I haven't looked at the news in the last few years to see if it's still an ongoing issue. But at least at the time when I was there, there was a significant amount of civil unrest. I didn't understand all of it that was going on. But at least one factor was the teachers would often go on strike. And it wasn't just that they would like stand outside a school building holding signs. They would often hijack buses and park them across the highways so that nobody could get to work. Sometimes it turned violent where there were cars flipped over in the road and set on fire. Most of the time it was scheduled and people knew when it was going to happen. You know, it had gotten to a point where everyone knew that there was no school that day because the teachers were going to be on strike and the highways were going to be blocked off. Anyways, I was just amazed. It felt to me like the kids were almost never in school. And I was made aware at the time that Oaxaca had the lowest education rates in all of the country of Mexico. And just anecdotally, I feel like I could see what is being described in this quote. It feels like having a solid educational system, at least in modern society, is a key factor in being able to hold a civilization together, or at least allow a civilization to exist as a developed civilization in our modern world. And I think there are a lot of obvious ways in which that's the case, right? A more educated society is going to be more innovative. It's going to be better at solving problems. It's going to be economically better off on average because they will be engaged in higher paying careers. But what other ways, Kellen, does having an educated society help protect a nation from collapse? And on the opposite end, why does a poor education make a nation more vulnerable to collapse? Well, I think that quote that I shared gave some interesting examples, right? Patients die at the hands of poorly educated doctors. Buildings collapse at the hands of such engineers. For people to be very effective in any sort of specialized role, which is what's required in a complex society, they need to have the education to be properly specialized. But when you look at it from kind of a broader scale, there's some interesting information out there. For example, according to UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, poverty could be more than halved if all adults received a secondary education. That's 420 million people around the globe. And the claim is that it's because secondary education provides people with those skills that open up employment opportunities and higher incomes. It allows them to be specialized like we talked about in our complex society. Another one that I found interesting is that education actually can help people be more environmentally aware and proactive. So in 2010, there was a survey and just looking at the country of Germany, it says in Germany, only 12% of respondents with less than a secondary education took action, but it rose to 26% of those with secondary education and 46% with tertiary education. And this was talking about 
environmental action, taking action to be more politically active when it comes to environmental issues. There's a paper that was published in 2018, and it talks about something that they call the rate of return to schooling. So we think about ROI, right? Return on investment, or you think of EROEI, which we've talked about in the past in regards to energy. But here's what it says about this term. The rate of return to schooling equates the value of lifetime earnings of the individual to the net present value of costs of education. For an investment to be economically justified, the rate of return should be positive and should be higher than the alternative rate of return. So basically, is it actually worthwhile to pursue more schooling? What they did is they looked at a database of 1,120 estimates in 139 countries from the years 1950 to 2014. And all of that led to this conclusion that globally, there is a 9% increase in hourly earnings for every extra year of schooling. And that's not equal across the board. That's a global average. The highest returns are in low-income and middle-income countries. But there's just a mountain of data out there that suggests that education is one of the most powerful drivers for reducing poverty. It's also a key factor in improving health and gender equality, peace, stability. It reduces violence, reduces child labor. It reduces child marriages, gives more opportunities to people with disabilities. One that's really interesting is it can help get rid of this kind of school to prison pipeline. This is a major issue in the US. More than half of black young men who attend urban high schools don't earn a diploma. And of those dropouts, 60% will go to prison at some point. And so they call it the school to prison pipeline, which is a really unhealthy cycle within our society. One that comes to my mind is that education done right should teach people about critical thinking skills, other soft skills like communication, the scientific method, how to verify sources of information, those types of things. And we see today so many issues with conspiracy theories and sort of these mainstream ideas like QAnon, for example, and things that people kind of get sucked into that I feel like the higher amount of education on average, the less of that type of content are people going to find themselves being caught up in and sharing because those critical thinking skills are more present. Yeah, totally. And along those same lines, increased education actually reduces racism and sexism and nationalism and can be a major contributor in kind of nipping some of those points of conflict in the bud. Yeah, Kellen, those are really great points. And it's pretty easy to see, based on your explanation, of why a nation who's failing in regards to education is in danger of deteriorating. And the research that I did this week was mostly on where are we at regarding education in the United States? The world is a really big place, so it'd be really hard to be able to say exactly where we're at globally. Some places will be in a much better situation than the U.S. is. Some places are worse. But since you and I live here, Kellen, it's most relevant to us. This is where I focused. And if you listening to this podcast know a teacher or anyone in education, you're probably familiar at least somewhat with a lot of the issues that the system is facing right now. My guess is there's very few teachers or educators in the United States who wouldn't feel that the things I'm about to talk about are happening. Anecdotally, I know 
several teachers. My wife has worked really close with a few educators here locally, and they're really struggling. One of them actually just changed jobs and has potentially thought about changing careers because the situation is just too stressful or getting out of hand. So we're going to start here with the fact that most teachers don't get into education for the paycheck, right? And we'll get more into pay later, but this is not a super high paying job. Most teachers or a lot of teachers do it because they get fulfillment out of it. They get to teach the future, right? They are raising the next generation of innovators and thinkers and the people who are supposed to be saving the world, right? They're trying to make an impact in those kids' lives. They're trying to be a positive influence and build meaningful relationships. And so all these factors that we're going to discuss, they put a major stress on those teachers' abilities to do that. So if you take all the issues that they're facing, all the trials and difficulties in education right now, and then you replace the fulfillment that they're trying to achieve with frustration and burnout from those. And it's pretty plain to see why we have a staff shortage in the education profession right now. One article that I read talking about teacher burnout said the following. It said, we're at a major tipping point in education. According to a recent survey, 48% of teachers admitted that they had considered quitting within the last 30 days. So that's nearly half. Of that number, 34% said they were thinking about leaving the profession entirely. So a third of all teachers saying they're ready to just get out of education completely and start over with something new. K through 12 employees are almost twice as likely as other government employees to say they've had a difficult time adjusting to changes brought on by COVID-19. School employees also reported higher levels of anxiety, stress, and burnout compared to other government workers. And the margins were quite a bit higher. And the same positive feedback loops that we've seen in other sectors also applies in the education system. So when I say other sectors, I'm talking about the healthcare system, EMS, things like that, where basically the teachers that are struggling with the burnout quit and leave, and that causes the remaining teachers to be required to carry more load. They have to make up for the teachers that left, which increases their burnout, which causes them to leave, and the feedback loop goes from there. But this feedback loop then carries on in another direction, because when there's less teachers and higher teacher burnout, it causes a worsening learning environment, which worsens the education and worsens student behavior, which then causes higher teacher burnout. And if I can just jump in, I recently spoke to somebody who I know who has been a teacher for decades. My wife and I ran into him at the grocery store and he was telling us that he is expediting his retirement. He's so excited to retire from teaching. And he's somebody who, from knowing him in years past, he's always had this passion for teaching. He just loves the students. But when we talked to him at the grocery store, he said, if I were starting over in my career today, there's no way I would do teaching. And he was blaming it a lot on the students. He was saying students today are just so distracted and apathetic. They're so unruly and mean to teachers. They don't care. Anyways, he was going on and on about how he feels like students today are unteachable, which is why these last few years for him have been kind of miserable. But I think it speaks to, you know, a lot of broader systematic issues. One of those being what you're talking about here, that positive feedback loop that just creates a worse environment, which creates more teacher burnout and the cycle goes on and on. Yeah. And and there's no reason not to believe him when he says that, right? That he feels that students are becoming less teachable. And a large part of that may be that he's not receiving the support that he needs in order to handle the number of students that he has. It could be that those students are reacting 
to changes in the education system. And of course, there are tons of outside contributing factors to that as well. Increasing screen times and just other declines in normal societal behavior that are probably making children act out more in schools. So similar to what we kind of see happening in the healthcare system, it seems that there's this disconnect and a distrust between teachers and the administration. So I've seen a lot of healthcare workers, for example, complaining that the administration, the admins are just so disconnected from life out on the floor. It's like they're in a whole different world and they're demanding too much. They're asking too much with zero empathy or understanding of what's actually happening. And teachers often feel like administrators are disconnected from their needs, but also from the needs of the students. And so with that lack of support comes, again, this feeling of burnout, frustration. And this is something, again, that I've seen anecdotally from my friends with the one that just quit here recently in the last couple of weeks because they were not receiving any support from administration. So another big piece to teacher burnout is parents. I don't have any numbers on this. And so most of the evidence around this is, is anecdotal, but it seems like so many parents pass their kids off to teachers as if it's a daycare, right? They don't help support their kids' education. And in so many cases, those parents are actually making the teacher's job much harder. Those behavioral issues from students that we were just talking about, they often result in parents blaming the school right? If a kid causes a problem or comes home from school being a problem, that blame goes to the teachers very often. And administrations are nervous about being sued. They're nervous about fallout. So they may not be supporting the teachers as much as they should and listening more to the parents. And that's causing a further disconnect and distrust. It's not a teacher's job to be a parent. And if you just take a look at the R teachers subreddit, you'll see some of the crazy things that parents have done to make these teachers' jobs harder. I think it's a lonely thing to be a teacher. And when you're attacked from all fronts by your own administration, when you're attacked by the students, when you're attacked by their parents, who's on your side, right? And if what you're doing, you're doing for the fulfillment of being able to help people when not only are you not shown appreciation, but you're abandoned or ridiculed for it, you know, I'd leave too, <laughs> for sure. So more than just teachers leaving, there's also this problem of not being able to fill the vacant positions. From that survey I mentioned earlier, 15% of schools said that shortages are very severe. 25% said they're severe and another 37% classified staffing challenges as moderate. Just 5% of administrators said they aren't experiencing any staffing shortages in their schools or districts this year. So the number of administrators saying, no, we're good, staffing is fine, is 5%. Just over three quarters of respondents said they're having trouble finding enough substitutes to cover. And 68% said bus drivers are hard to come by. Another 55% said they're struggling to fill open positions for paraprofessionals and instructional aides. So just a huge amount of trouble they're finding to be able to cover these open positions. Another survey asked administrators what they're doing to help with the problem. If you're having a teacher staffing shortage, what do you do? And the highest number of respondents, 66%, said they're asking current employees to take on more tasks. <laughs> so the highest answer was we're overburdening our workers that we do have. Much lower on the list, about half as many respondents said that they're raising wages. So paying more is much lower on the priority list. Giving more work to the existing workers is much higher. And I know there is a lot of red tape when it comes to paying more. It's not as easy as a school administrator simply saying, oh, sure, yeah, I want to pay teachers more. But Corey, I've been saying it for years, far 
before I ever learned about collapse, I've always just felt like teachers should be the people in our society that we pay the most. It seems like we would want our best and brightest to be the ones teaching children and youth. And you would want that to be a very competitive position. And the demands that we place on teachers, their workload and what they have to put up with and all the preparation for the lessons they teach, all of the administrative tasks, just keeping track of students and who's absent and who's tardy and grading papers, you know, all of those things, it feels like it's an extremely demanding job that should be much more rewarding financially than it is. Yeah, if you relate the value of something to its monetary value, which I don't think things should necessarily be related that way. But if you do, we're showing in the US that we don't really care about education. It's not important because we're paying our teachers so little. I agree with you. This being as important as it is, teachers should be paid at a much higher rate than they are. And this is transitioning into the next section here. Salaries for many teachers are actually decreasing. Research shows that the average salary for public elementary and secondary school teachers dropped by nearly 5% between 2010 and now. So over the last decade, where inflation has increased so much, the average salary for teachers is going down. Certain states like Colorado and Oklahoma experienced a 17 and 16% decrease. So just kind of looking it up, the average public school teacher is making somewhere around $60,000, with the bottom 10% making around $45,000 a year, and the top 10% making $80,000 or so. And obviously, the average of 60000 is going to have more of an impact depending on where you live. If you're in a high cost of living area, $60,000 does not go very far. And so when you think about entry-level teaching starting somewhere around $45,000, most people across the course of their careers are going from making something like forty-five to making Sixty to seventy. So, a thirty-year career or more, a forty-year career, having a relatively small increase in salary over that time. Currently, there's around a twenty percent wage gap between teachers and other careers from college-based education. So, we're paying our teachers twenty percent less than we're paying other people who go to college. And again, that just shows where our priorities lie. And when you talk about all the frustrations, when you talk about all the things that teachers go through, if I am a eighteen-year-old kid going to college, it's no wonder that I'm not getting really excited about becoming a teacher right now. You know, the issue with hiring has gotten so bad that I know at least here locally in the last couple of years, they've made it so that you can become a teacher without even having a bachelor's degree in teaching. You could have a degree in something completely unrelated and they'll still accept you as a teacher. You've seen probably in the news recently, places throughout the nation have had police officers or even the National Guard fill in for substitute teaching duties or driving buses because there's just not enough people for it. And it's hard to like express my feelings around that. If you were to think a few years ago about the National Guard taking over teaching duties in a school, like that sounds like a nation that is in severe decline. And yet we've kind of just embraced it as the new normal. Oh, yeah, we have a shortage. So cops have to come substitute teach at school. That's normal now. Okay, so moving on from that, schools are also on average overcrowded. One in four schools in the U.S. have more than 5% overcrowding, meaning that the number of students enrolled at the school is 5% or more higher than what the school is designed to accommodate. And that's not taking into account that schools are likely already designed to take in too many 
our student to teacher ratio is already too high, but this is saying that a quarter of all schools are going above and beyond even what was designed for. So they're especially overcrowded. 33% of the schools that were overcrowded were more than 25% over capacity. And kids can't learn as well that way. There's less one-on-one time with students. There's more possibility for behavioral issues. It's unhealthy and it's unsafe to be that overcrowded. You know, on top of just how much we're paying teachers, there's also the question of how much we're funding schools. And when we don't fund schools enough, again, we're showing that our priorities aren't in education. We're okay with there being 30 or 40 kids in a classroom with one teacher, knowing that many of those children are going to fall under the cracks or between the cracks, not receiving the help that they need. And so on the other end, over 50% of schools are undercrowded, meaning there weren't enough students enrolled there, which causes financial and funding issues for that school. So you have problems on both ends. You're highly overcrowded, you're undercrowded, and the number of actual schools that are within the range of proper enrollment is actually very small, with only 25% of schools being within that proper range. Going back to what I was just saying of not funding schools enough, for more than 90% of K-12 through schools, funding comes from state and local governments, which is largely generated by sales and income taxes. But research shows that funding has not increased with need. So many states are still issuing funding that's lower than it was even before the Great Recession. So here we are 15 years later since the Great Recession, and our amount of funding has decreased since then. And of course, that means less pay for teachers. It means fewer programs, diminished resources. You know, most of the teachers I've talked to are given a very tiny budget for their classrooms. And so they're ending up spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a year out of their own pockets for supplies for the classroom. I've talked to multiple teachers who will go and they'll set up their classroom at the beginning of the year and they get all excited about making it engaging and fun for the students. And they've spent a few hundred dollars to get those supplies. One study found that there is a $150 billion year funding gap for U.S. schools. The study said funding gap, meaning that lifting students up to average outcomes requires greater public investment. Two thirds of all schools face funding gaps and the schools with funding gaps are disproportionately made up of minorities. And these are issues that have been going on for decades, right? This is nothing new, even knowing that it's been happening for as long as it's been happening. Congress and the American people just refuse to make it a priority. And the further you get in describing this, the more you get into these numbers, the more it just sounds like our educational system really is just in a state of crisis. Going back to that original quote, that original premise that the collapse of education is the collapse of a nation. You've been describing how our educational system over the decades has been getting progressively worse in so many ways. And to me, that's extremely alarming. Yeah, we're failing our students, which means that we're failing ourselves because we're jeopardizing our future. You know, I've seen some comments recently on the subreddit from people talking about how Americans have sort of normalized shootings in school. And there there was a recent poll that said that over 50% of teenagers said they were worried about the possibility of gun violence in school. So you've got half of kids, over half of kids going to school every day, and they are thinking about or worried about the fact that they're not safe there, that somebody could bring a gun and commit you know these terrible acts of violence. There's been a string of high profile shootings recently in American schools, certainly over the last decade that have just increased both in quantity, so the number of school shootings and in the severity of those shootings as well. 
you know, the fact that there are bulletproof backpacks for sale, that's enough evidence for me that the situation is unsafe. And how sad it is to think that any student lives in a reality where we as adults have sort of allowed ourselves to normalize or be desensitized to that. And for now, the last thing I'll mention is just that the pandemic has exacerbated so many of these issues. Like other things, you know, the pandemic is not the cause of the issues. It's just showing the issues more plainly. It's exacerbating them. Higher inflation, worsening economy, the increase in virtual learning, the widening learning gap, you know, there being more opportunities in other sectors for teachers. It's just accelerated the issues and highlighted the fact that, like you said, our education system is on the verge of collapse, if not already collapsing. You know, as you mentioned all of that, that's really only scratching the surface of all that we could talk about here. We mostly discussed primary, secondary education. I have a brother-in-law who is a professor at a university, and he has mentioned to me that they're having such a hard time getting students to attend. They just can't get students to show up to class, even virtually. And these are students who are paying thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to be there. Exactly. And that brings up another issue that we haven't even discussed. We could spend a whole episode talking about student debt and the enormous amounts of debt that students go into to get a degree only to try to find a job that will pay them enough money that they can pay back that debt. And often they're unsuccessful in doing so. We also haven't talked much about the situation internationally. Like you mentioned, your research this week was focused on what's happening here in the US. I know I read some articles from individuals describing the situation in some South American countries. One was from an educator in Bangladesh. In 2019, before we saw all of these problems being exacerbated by the pandemic, the World Bank reported that in rural India, nearly three quarters of third graders cannot solve a two-digit subtraction problem, such as 46 minus 17. And by grade five, half still cannot do so. And as I was looking into the situation throughout much of the world, so many of the problems come from corruption. There's so much bribery. There's the act of buying grades, nepotism in teacher appointment. You know, there are illicit payments in recruitment and admission, the misuse of educational grants, demanding payment for private tutoring in place of formal teaching and learning. There's just a whole world of issues in these countries where they're trying to fix their educational system. And yet there's so much corruption that they're always having to try to fight against. Yeah, you saying that makes me think of something I saw recently in Afghanistan, where the Taliban had committed that in taking over the government of Afghanistan, they were going to allow girls to continue to go to school or to go back. And then just recently, they retracted that and told them they couldn't. And there was these videos of these girls just weeping and crying as they showed up to school and were turned away. Education is so important to so many people, especially in these developing countries where, like you said, it makes a huge difference. There's such an impact for people who get an education. And the future of those countries is reliant on students getting a good education for the advancements of more technical fields that improve the overall situation and economies in those countries. 
So we could do five or 10 or 20 episodes on each of those different topics and everything happening all over the world in education. And we'll definitely come back on touch on this again, but that's a great call out that we are barely scratching the surface of what's really going on with education. I think a really important thing to mention here is that the logistical problems in the U.S. with education right now are not the only issues that the education system is facing. But really importantly is the way that we're educating. Even if logistically everything was going perfectly, we had enough teachers, we had enough funding, you know, are we teaching kids the right things and are we teaching them in the right way? And there are many people, myself included, who would say, no, we're not. So some questions to ask, what is the education system even set up to accomplish right now? What are students expected to be able to do with that education when they graduate? And this is a bit of a more subjective thing, right? There's going to be a lot of differing opinions on this, but I think there's a strong argument that our school system is basically set up to create employees. Arne Duncan, he was the U.S. Secretary of Education under Barack Obama, has written a book on the topic, and he talks about how our education system is designed to pump out assembly line workers. He talks about how other nations are right now outperforming the U.S. in numerous ways and how the U.S. doesn't even rank in the top 10 in any meaningful education metric, except for how much money we spend versus how little return we get from those expenses. So we are the most inefficient with our money. We are overspending many nations, but we're getting very little return from those expenses because we're just not doing it right. One thing he mentions was how the U.S. was one of the first nations to ever mandate high school education, and that was around 100 years ago. That led to a ton of successes for the U.S. after World War II and as industrialization intensified. So it was perfect. The way we were doing things back then was great because what we needed was assembly line workers, right? We needed people who could go out, work in an industrial setting, and that's what sort of exploded our economy after World War II. But as the world has changed, as our technologies have changed, our system as a whole has changed, we've become more complex. Our education system has not changed. It's staying the same. And according to Arne Duncan, he says, we're still building drones to work in factories. We've got this status quo in education that politicians have shown extremely resistant to changing. So you think about that, you mentioned earlier the red tape. You think about how much red tape there is in just trying to get pay increases for teachers, but then you think about reforming the entire system, changing the way that we're teaching, what we're teaching, that's proved to be a task that's nearly impossible or is impossible. But his argument is that the entire education system needs complete reformation. Well, it's so ironic about that. You talk about how our education system is just designed to pump out employees one thing that I came across is that 80% of high school seniors in the U.S. obtain a diploma. But the National Assessment of Education Progress, which is apparently the most extensive standardized test administered in the United States, reports that less than 40% of graduating seniors have mastered reading and math and are poorly equipped for college and real world life. So I think it just further highlights what you're describing here, that the way that we're educating isn't really accomplishing the purpose that it should. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned standardized tests, because I think that's a big part of the problem. The school system is based around these short-term tests that are the same for everybody, rather than actually retaining valuable information that can be used later on. You know, I think of my high school experience or even my college experience, and it was just full of cramming. You know, I knew 
that in order to get a good grade, that the 24 hours before a test, I had to sit down and study for three hours at a time, pack as much information into my brain as I could. And our brains aren't designed to work that way. If we try and do that, we'll retain that information for that short amount of time until that test is over. And then that information all goes away. You know, many tests, the teacher would even tell you specifically, here's what's going to be asked in the test. Here's the stuff you have to memorize. You'd get a sheet that would just lay everything out for you. And the goal was to memorize that sheet so that you could pass the test. Very little critical thinking, very little incentive for long-term memory, very little real-world application. And I hate to say it, but I feel like much of what my education taught me was how to procrastinate. I learned that I could write an eight-page paper two days before it was due, even though I was given the entire semester to come up with it and still get a B plus or an A minus. And that was much more than a passing grade. And I was completely satisfied with that. If I could go back now, you know, I think I'd put much more focus on myself to to do some real learning. But when you're a kid in school, you're incentivized to get a good grade. And I, I just don't feel like getting a good grade and learning are in the same boat right now in our education system. One thing I do remember feeling like as soon as I graduated from college was, why didn't I learn about debt? Or why didn't I learn about credit cards or paying taxes or any of the other fundamental things that would have been beneficial to know going into adulthood? You know, instead I learned trigonometry or things like that, that I never thought about again. And I'm not saying that specialized types of math are not important or good to learn, but I do feel like we neglected the sort of common sense things that would benefit every single adult who's going into a completely new phase of their lives. It's interesting because I liked school mostly because I was good at it. And it became apparent to me that that didn't mean I was actually smarter than others, but I just had a skill set for being able to take tests. You know, it was frustrating to some of my friends or, or even as I talk through things with my wife when we look back at school because I was able to get by by not studying very much at all, but still getting great grades. And it's not because I knew the information better than anyone else. It's because I understood how the tests worked and how to answer the tests. Same thing with writing papers. I learned how to write a paper that sounded nice without giving it much substance. And so unfortunately, you know, I I look back and I had fantastic grades all through school, but kind of like how you said, school just kind of taught you procrastination. In my case, school kind of just taught me how to work the system. I know that there are some advancements taking place. It's difficult here in the US because so much is determined state by state. How do you give the kind of flexibility that's needed, but still hold to a standard without the kind of standardized test that you're talking about. There's so many things to work through, but what you highlighted, how we're not even in the top 10 on any meaningful metric, clearly other nations have figured out how to do it in a better way. And the progress that we're making is so slow. If there's progress at all, right? The evidence of what we've talked about here shows that the education system may very well just be in decline. And I don't have the answers right? You don't have the answers. We're not experts in education. And who knows what those answers are, if those answers are out there. What would a reformed education system look like? And how could we make it so that kids are actually learning? They're learning what's important. They're retaining that information. I don't know. Like most things related to collapse, it seems like sometimes there is no perfect solution or perfect answer. And I think our purpose here is to just look at what is happening and what are the consequences of us continuing down that path. One additional comment that I'll make is that it's not just 
hypothetical. You know, it's not, it's not just that, hey, perhaps kids that are graduating from school aren't properly prepared for the workforce and to make a meaningful contribution. In my employment, I'm on the hiring end. And as I have the opportunity to evaluate candidates and I collaborate with other managers and leaders that are also trying to hire, it's alarming how many applicants don't have the most basic skills that that can't even show up consistently or do very fundamental professional tasks. We sometimes hire new employees and they don't have any of the resilience needed to be able to work a normal job. There's often kind of a strong sense of entitlement without any drive to actually do any work. And so they might not show up on their first day or they might show up and then they leave for half the day and come back and haven't done any work or any of their training, but there's an expectation that they will be catered to. And maybe that points to the fact that the workforce is changing and employers need to adapt. But I also really worry that the education system isn't setting up students for success. You know, it's interesting that that you bring that up because right now in the economy, there is a shortage of employees, not just, you know, we just talked about teachers and how badly they're needed, but all over in every industry, people are struggling to hire. And so it's interesting to think about that if schools are failing the students, right, or if there's an increase in students with behavioral issues and whatever the cause is, if people are leaving school without having received a proper education, those people are still making their way out into the job market. There are important jobs out there that have to be filled and they're being filled with people who are unqualified for them. And that's kind of scary. It goes back to the quote you said at the beginning, a collapse in education leads to a collapse of a nation because we still need doctors. And if we don't have enough people applying who are qualified, then we have to hire the more unqualified ones, right? Again, I mentioned locally, we're hiring teachers who do not have a teaching degree. Anyone with a bachelor's degree can pretty much become a teacher because they're that desperate for it. I was talking to somebody recently who runs an engineering department, and he mentioned that for hiring at his workplace, they're pretty much just hiring anyone on who doesn't have like massive red flags. Little red flags were okay, <laughs> but massive red flags, that was, that was the only thing. They were hiring on people who a decade ago, there was no way they would have hired because they're in that much need of people. And so it is interesting to think about the future of our society and our infrastructure as it gets filled with people who did not receive a proper education who are underqualified or unqualified for the job and how that can weaken institutions. I know we plan to touch a little deeper on education later on. I know we'll want to get into more specifics, maybe find some specific examples. But for now, I think this episode serves its purpose of highlighting the importance of education and the vulnerability that we're currently experiencing in it here in the U.S. and globally. You know, I just want to say thanks to all the teachers out there, the educators who are working hard to help their students. Your work is appreciated and it doesn't go unnoticed by Kellen or I. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.